Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jared Lawson. If you're out in the foyer, foyer, go ahead and make your way in here. Welcome to Theological Equipping. We are continuing today our uh, newish semester uh, studying church history. Zach last week uh, talked about the earliest Christians, what was kind of common, what was worship like in the earliest church, what was persecution like in the earliest church. And today we're going to be uh, studying that exact same time period, except looking at specific people, the main influencers of the church during that time. And we're going to kind of do that throughout the semester. We'll look at uh, events, uh, big, uh, you know, what was the church doing during this hundred years or whatever. And then other times throughout the semester, we'll stop and look at main influential people. And we're doing that for two reasons. One, it it is people and their their ideas and things like that that shape the church in the same way that Acts. Yes, it's the story of the church spreading, but who is it mainly focusing on, especially in the second half? Paul. Paul and the way Paul is uh, going and ministering. So it's kind of the same in church history. And the second reason we're focusing on people is we want to introduce you to people, figures throughout the history of the church that uh, you should know that should be teachers in a sense for you. So I bet a lot of you, if you, especially if you've gone to Parkway for a while, would look at Zach or look at Jeff or Tim or Carl and think they have shaped my Christian walk in very real ways. So you look at and say, you know, I, I drifted more towards legalism until I heard you know, the, the incredible grace of Christ at Parkway and therefore that's, that's been a major correction or things like that. And so similarly with church history, You should know the the big figures, Augustine, Athanasius, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and they should shape the way you think about your Lord. And that's that's why we study them. Isn't because we we wanna worship these individual guys like they're saints or something like that, but uh, because they display the gospel in a clear light. They display who our Savior is in a beautiful light, often uh, a way that we in our modern day aren't thinking. And so we're gonna look at seven, oftentimes we'll just look at one, but today we're gonna look at uh, a couple guys, the earliest guys, we're gonna look at the martyrs, uh, the, the first, they're also called the apostolic fathers, the first guys that we know of after the apostles, the disciples, disciples, if you will. The apologists, the people who first begin to kind of make a defense for the Christian faith, and then the thinkers, real generic, we're not great with titles here. Uh, the, the great thinkers, the great minds of the early church, Tertullian and Irenaeus. So we'll look at those guys today. But remember, just the general context uh, of of the early church that Zach talked about last week, persecution, often local and sporadic, uh, but the church responds to persecution in different ways. Zach talked about the catacombs. One was hiding from the persecution. Another response was to capitulate, to, to renounce the faith. Uh, when there was persecution. And then two other responses that we'll talk about today, it was martyrdom, to refuse to renounce the faith and therefore be killed uh, for the sake of Christ. And then uh, apologetics, defense. People actually started to say, hang on a minute, uh, emperor, why are you killing Christians? We are your best citizens. We're the most forgiving. We're the ones who adopt more than anybody else. We're the ones who care for the poor. We're your best citizens. Why are you persecuting us? And then uh, giving a defense equally to surrounding society to say, you know, you think we're this new uh, religion. We're not. We're actually older than you. And there's some similarities between your Greek philosophical view and Christianity. So stop persecuting us. That's the apologist. So persecution and then heresy. Heresy is another main, uh, con- another, the main thing that's in the context of the early church. Heretics, we see kind of four or three bad guys, if you will, uh, two in the scriptures and then another one throughout church history. We see uh, false teachers, right? Men who want to uh, teach for false gain, for their own gain, right? Teaching false things to gain followers. Wolves, people who are praying, trying to destroy the church, right? Paul's constantly telling Timothy, watch out for these guys. Uh, and then heretics. Heretics, are different than those other two. They are someone uh, from within the church who thinks they're saying something good. They think they're being helpful, so they bring this teaching, but their teaching is so horrible and so wrong that it would threaten the very reality of Christianity. And so the church has to respond. So it's often a pastor who says, I actually think Jesus was a created being who's less than the Father, and the church has to say, hang on a minute, we don't believe that at all. How do we say clearer what we already believe? 
So as heretics show up, the church gets better at articulating their faith. They're not coming up with new doctrines as, as history goes on, but they're saying, we don't believe this, here's what we believe. Let me say it clearer. So heretics, heresy is a big uh, part of the early church, and that's where we get this last group, the thinkers, the generic thinkers. These are the men who uh, really, really lay the foundations for what we, to this day, believe, the Christian faith. So let's jump right in. Go to the martyrs first. These are uh, the first men. They're called the apostolic fathers because they knew the apostles. Don't get that confused. You also hear the term early church fathers or patristics. Early church fathers and patristics refers to kind of all the main figures for the first 500, 600 years. The apostolic fathers is a very small group, three men that we'll particularly look at that knew the apostles. So the first one is uh, Clement of Rome. Uh, Most of their writings uh, are are just encouragements to local churches, similar to the apostles, a lot like Philippians. Uh, They're not very uh, doctrinal. They're not like Romans where they lay out these these big theological statements. They're much more encouragement. So Clement of Rome uh, was a disciple of Paul, probably knew Peter as well. He is almost certainly the Clement uh, referenced in Philippians 4.3. As I ask you also, this is Paul talking, true companion, help these women, these unruly women, uh, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of uh, my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So that is uh, Clement of Rome. Very little uh, is known about his life besides the fact that he is the bishop of Rome. He is the pastor of the church in Rome that the letter Romans is to. So uh, tradition has it that Paul and Peter actually were both go to Rome. We see Paul end up in Rome in the book of Acts, but then tradition also tells us Peter gets there as well, and they're both killed there. Uh, Paul is uh, beheaded because he's a Roman citizen. Peter's crucified upside down. And uh, Clement apparently uh, takes over leadership of, of the church in Rome. And we only have one letter from him. Uh, the, we technically have two letters. The second one's debated if it's really him. But it's called First Clement. See, they're, they're not great with titles either. First Clement, so thinkers is fine. Uh, First Clement, uh, it is the earliest letter we have that's, that's a non-biblical epistle, if you will. So that's, uh, again, a big reason why it's significant is because it's early, not because it's laying out all these big doctrinal things. But he writes this letter to the church in Corinth because stuff is going bad in the church of Corinth. Shocker, right? Apparently, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians doesn't wake them up. There's still stuff going on. Apparently, this group of young men depose a whole bunch of the elders, and they start running things themselves. And so Clement has to write to them and say, hey, you can't do that. That's the leaders of the church. You know, take them back, submit to them. And then he exhorts them, you know, love one another in all humility, things like that. And his main argument is Christ is on the throne. Christ is resurrected and is sitting on the throne, and that is why you should submit to your elders. Uh, And uh, his death, again, his martyrdom, uh, it's kind of a late account, but he was apparently imprisoned for his faith. He ministers to his fellow prisoners, and as a result, they get converted, and he is sentenced to execution for converting his fellow uh, prisoners, and he is tied to an anchor and thrown into the sea. Uh, So that's Clement of Rome, uh, one of the earliest guys. Second is Ignatius of Antioch. Has anybody named their kid Ignatius? I think we could start a movement to get that name back, you know, Matthew, Luke, Ignatius, right? Just sounds awesome. Uh, He was discipled by Peter and was made uh, the pastor, the bishop of the church in Antioch. Remember, Antioch in Acts is a very significant church. It's where Christians are first called Christians. And so Ignatius is, is the pastor there, the bishop there. And as an old man, he is arrested uh, and condemned to death for his faith. And at the time, Rome had just won this great military victory. And so they're planning all these celebrations in Rome. And so someone has the idea, why don't we ship this famous pastor to Rome from Antioch all the way to Rome and his death in the Colosseum can be this great spectacle for us to celebrate this new victory. And so that's what happens. Ignatius is, is being taken under guard all the way to Rome. And as he's going on the journey, he writes letters uh, to six churches and then one to his friend Polycarp, who we'll look at in a second. And uh, we have these, these letters, and they're, again, important, they're primarily uh, encouragements, telling them to keep the faith, you know, submit to Christ, further the kingdom, things like that, uh, but it also primarily shows the early church's attitude towards martyrdom, towards persecution, particularly his letter to the church of Rome. 
So somehow the church of Rome hears he's coming and they hatch a plan. We're gonna free him from his persecution. And somehow Ignatius hears of that plan and he does not want that to happen. He wants to die. He has embraced his martyrdom with joy. So his, his letter to them is primarily saying, don't rescue me. Don't rescue me. So uh, I have a quote here. Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment come upon me so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. He wants to die like Christ died. That, that is his, his, his uh, attitude towards martyrdom. He tells them that they should rather pray for him than rescue him. I won't read that quote for the sake of time. But then lastly, one of the primary reasons he wants to die is he wants his death to be a witness for Christ. He says, if you remain silent about me, meaning don't rescue me, I shall become a word of God, a declaration of God, if you will. But if you allow yourself to be swayed by the the love in which you hold my flesh, I shall again be no more than a human voice. So he's saying, if you save me, yeah, I'll keep preaching, I won't die, but then I'm just another human voice, but if I can die a martyr's death, I will declare uh, this great witness towards Christ. There's a famous quote uh, by Tertullian who we'll look at later, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's this idea that as people look at the people dying these incredible deaths for the sake of Christ, refusing to renounce their savior, that is the greatest witness possible. And Ignatius really, really believes this. So this is a, becomes a very popular view of martyrdom and it later becomes a real big problem. Uh, in fact, the church leaders, there's people trying to get killed. Uh, they're, they're diving into persecution when it's not looking for them head first and the church leaders are having to say, okay, stop, this is not what persecution is meant to do. You, when it comes upon you, yes, stay, stay true to the faith, but don't go looking for it. Uh, and so Ignatius gets to Rome and he's killed by wild animals, most likely in the Colosseum. And then Polycarp. Polycarp, whose death is probably one of the most famous martyrdom accounts in church history, maybe behind uh, Peter being crucified upside down. Polycarp was discipled by John, the Apostle John. He's a bishop in Smyrna, Western Turkey. You guys know where Smyrna is. Uh, And so he was 86, he was an old man, and persecution breaks out in his town where a group of Christians are, are being killed and all of a sudden someone in the crowd yells out, bring out Polycarp. If we kill the leader, the church will die also. And so Polycarp uh, first hides, and then when it's discovered where he is, he says, this must be the will of the Lord that I die. And he's brought before uh, the Roman judge. The Roman judge tries to convince him, saying, consider your old age, you know, you're 86. Surely you can just, you know, we don't want to have to kill you. You're an old man. Just worship the emperor, renounce Christ. And Polycarp famously responds, 86 years I have served Christ and he has never done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? And after the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> got bubble throat. Um, after this, the crowd goes and gathers wood uh, for him to be burnt at the stake. He stands up on the wood and as the fire is lit, as the story goes, the fire's lit and the fire begins to rage, but it doesn't burn him. It forms a circle around him and this enrages uh, the, the Roman judge. So he orders the executioner to stab him to death, uh, which he does. And as the story goes, so much blood spills out of Polycarp that it extinguishes the fire and the crowd stands in amazement. And again, his death... Uh, goes forth as a big witness of what uh, the, the depth of Christian belief in this Savior, Jesus Christ. We're still reading about it 2,000 years later. And so those are kind of the early martyrs. Again, they're, they're not doing a whole lot of thinking. Again, they're not the thinkers. They're the martyrs, right? Their lives, their deaths in particular, are, are the big witness uh, to the church. And what is primarily shaping the church is that they're early and that their deaths are so, I keep wanting to say fantastic. That's the wrong word. Crazy? I don't know the right word. Big, whatever. Uh, I can't uh, speak very well. Uh, the next group the apologists. So uh, as, as people are dying, Christianity is spreading. And like Zach talked about last week, there's horrible misunderstandings of the church. Love feasts are being considered by the surrounding world as uh, big orgies that Christians are having, right? Greet each other with a holy kiss, calling each other's brothers and sisters. That looks like a bunch of incestuous stuff to the outside world. So there's all these horrible misunderstandings. Christians are called atheists because they don't worship all the Romans' gods. Uh, and per- as persecution is breaking out, this group of men, the apologists start to say, how, do, how about we actually explain away these misunderstandings? We address them head on and say, look, this is not what Christians believe. You've misunderstood the faith. Here's actually what Christians believe. So their writings are a bit more doctrinal. Uh, they're not encouragements to local churches. Rather, they're 
kind of holistic trying to explain the Christian belief. Some of them do okay, others do not do very good. We'll look at uh, origin in particular in a second. But first, Justin Martyr, whose name is Justin, but he's martyred, and so we give him that last name as well. Justin Martyr, uh, that picture of him that I have in the notes, he's not flipping you off. Uh, those are uh, ancient hand signals. I think he's telling people to be quiet because he's, because he's speaking. Uh, but he's born in Samaria, he's a Samaritan, uh, maybe related to the Good Samaritan. We don't know. We don't have a whole lot of sources on that. That's a joke. A lot of jokes uh, you can tell in this teaching as we're going through all these horrible, gruesome deaths. I'm just trying to be funny. Keep it light. Okay. Uh, he's uh, trained in philosophy, and he is diligently cir- uh, uh, searching for the truth, similar to Augustine. He, he wants to know what is the truth, so he tries stoicism for a little bit, and that he doesn't find appealing. And then he finds a platonic philosophy and he loves Platonism for a long time and so he thinks he's found the truth and then one day he's walking on a beach, happens to bump into a Christian who shows him just through conversation how his Platonism is insufficient and how Christianity is infinitely better and he becomes a Christian uh, at the age of 30 and once he becomes a Christian he doesn't want to abandon all of his philosophical training but rather he thinks oh I actually have the tools to be able to give a good defense for Christianity and so that's what he does he opens a a Christian philosophical school in Rome where he would write correct misunderstandings about the faith uh, and then he would hold open debates where he would debate people and uh, win converts to the faith by showing them that what they believed was dumb. I think Zach does this in his spare time uh, as well. So he calls Christianity the true philosophy. Calls Christianity the true philosophy and his his kind of method of giving a defense, particularly when he's uh, engaging with the philosophical Greek world, is he wants to turn the tables on them. He wants to find connections between what they believe and what Christians believe and then flip it and show how Christianity is superior. Okay, so he, he thought, you know, every philosophy in the world has seeds of the truth, has seeds of Christianity, right? Everybody's made in the image of God. Romans 1 tells us, you know, we have at least some concept of God. So it's kind of this concept of all truth is God's truth. C.S. Lewis and uh, Tolkien have this as well. You know, Tolkien's like, I don't want to get rid of the idea of wizards and things like that. Why don't I just uh, show, display to this world how you can be brought in through those things to see there's actually something greater. And so uh, that was kind of his strategy. And so he would say things like, you know, you believe generic Greek philosophy, that there's a supreme being from which everything else derives its being. There's one being and everything else comes from that supreme being. Christians believe that too. Christians believe there is God and everything else comes from God, except we call that God Father, that God is a loving Father. So you see that, wants to make a nice connection. See, don't be so upset with Christianity. Here's what we believe, similar to you, and then flips it and says, actually, what we believe is better. Similar, we, we, we believe that there's a world after this world just like you do, generic Greek uh, you know, philosophy, except we don't think uh, that world is kind of where the soul frees the body, but rather resurrection uh, of the body is, is the ultimate goal. And so this is a helpful tool for evangelism. Again, trying to find connection points where you can agree and then actually, once you've kind of disarmed their misunderstandings of Christianity, show them uh, how Christianity is superior but problems are gonna come up for Justin with this kind of method because it's not the best starting point when you're giving a, a holistic understanding for the faith to say, let's start with the kind of unbiblical idea of pagan philosophy and then try and Christianize that, show them how, how, how Christianity is uh, essentially similar. And so one of the main problems Justin runs into uh, is when he's trying to talk about the father and the son Uh, God the Father and and God the Son, when he's trying to distinguish the two, he has in his mind uh, the Greek philosophical idea that God is so totally transcendent that he can have no dealings with kind of created material reality. And so he makes the claim, it is never God the Father in the Old Testament who deals with man. It's not God in the burning bush. It's not God who appears to Moses on the mountain. It's never God the Father because that God is so transcendent he can't. He needs an intermediate Intermediary. So it's always Jesus. It's always the word who is dealing with man. And so this leads him to talk about Jesus as an intermediary who, quote, is another God and Lord besides the maker of all. A little problematic to call Jesus another God, right? So uh, this, uh, he's not realizing this, but what he's doing in this kind of evangelistic apologetic attempt to show how they're similar to Greek philosophy, he's totally undermining 
the reality that in Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, right? Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You can't do that if he's just a lesser intermediary. He, he can't say that if he's another God. So Justin isn't realizing that, I don't think. Uh, so he's in his uh, efforts to kind of give a defense, it, it kind of leads him uh, to you know, some serious mistakes, meaning Jesus is a subordinate God, a lesser divinity. Irenaeus and Athanasius uh, will kind of correct this view and again say, he is true God from true God. If it's not God who comes down to save us, we have no salvation. If it is not fully God who comes down to save us, we have no tr true communion, true fellowship with God because it's not God. We have fellowship with this intermediary, but not, not God. And so most scholars actually will talk about two Justins. Uh, when he's engaging with the Jewish thought of the day, when he's uh, dealing with people who believe the Old Testament, he's actually crystal clear on how uh, the Messiah of the New Testament, the Christ of the Bible, is the true Son of God. And there's really no mistakes there. But when he begins to engage with uh, Greek philosophy, he takes on a, a bit too, in my opinion, too much of their presuppositions, and he essentially argues for a subordinate Christ, a subordinate Jesus. But we should remember these are the first men who are venturing out to give a holistic defense of the faith. And we should be a little bit gracious to them. Not, be, not say, great, let's just take that at face value. We should acknowledge that it is a horrible mistake, but realize Justin doesn't have the benefit of people doing the hard work before him saying, this is what Christians believe about the Trinity, for instance. He is before the great council of Nicaea that we'll look at in a few weeks where the church says, this is the, the, the biblical revelation of the Trinity. And so how many times in your life have you said something about the gospel or about Jesus and then a mentor or somebody has said, hey, you said this, do you realize that that actually leads to this conclusion? It's kind of scary. And you're like, oh no, I didn't realize that. Okay, I don't believe that. And then your view is corrected, right? He doesn't have the benefit. That's happened to me a lot, mainly every conversation I have with Zach or Jeff. Uh, but uh, Justin doesn't have that mentor. He is the first one trying to go give uh, this kind of account of the faith. So we'll be gracious to him a little bit. So he's, uh, uh, the context of his death, he is debating, again, a very Zach-like manner, de debating this uh, pagan philosopher in Rome, and he defeats him, humiliates him in front of his friends. And as the story goes, this pagan philosopher gets real mad at him, goes, turns him in for his Christianity. Justin and all of his disciples are rounded up. They refuse to worship the emperor, and they're all uh, beheaded. So he is martyred for the faith as well. So... Justin, one of the first uh, apologists thinking, uh, how, how do I defend the Christian faith? The next, origin. Origin, that's not Oregon, it's origin, it's a hard J sound. Uh, raised in a Christian family uh, in Alexandria. His father is actually killed uh, as a Christian in this great persecution that broke out in uh, 202 AD. And Origen wants to join his father. He wants to be killed for the faith. Again, this, again, this is a popular idea. So he wants to go die for the faith, but his mother hides his clothes. So he can't go out and die naked. That would be shameful. So he doesn't die, thanks to his mom's uh, quick wit. Uh, he, uh, he starts a school or is, is put in charge of the Alexandrian church's catechetical school who prepares people for baptism. And then he later starts his own school of Christian philosophy where he would lecture both Christians and non-Christians. He would hold public debates like Justin and win converts to the faith uh, that way. He was uh, a strict uh, aesthetic. He lives a very, very strict aesthetic life. He would fast almost constantly. He lived in voluntary poverty and... He uh, castrated himself. Some of you read it before I got there and I heard some, uh. yeah, he takes uh, Matthew 19 literally where Jesus says, some uh, make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven and he thought, I am one of that some and he did. Uh, so he is uh, very serious about that kind of stuff and he is by far uh, the church's most, the early church's most prolific writer. Uh, he wrote somewhere around 2,000 books, most of which we don't have because they were later, later burned. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but he, what he would do is he would get seven scribes uh, and he would stand in the middle of them and he would uh, you know, dictate one book to one. He would begin to write and he would turn and dictate another book to another and keep going and keep going. And he would just do that for years and years. So he would produce a, a crazy amount of uh, material. 
And in his attempt to uh, give a, a defense for Christianity to society, uh, he gives essentially the, uh, the church's first systematic theology on first principles, one of, the, one of the few works we still have from him where he attempts to lay out literally everything that the Christians believe. And he gets almost everything uh, horribly wrong. Uh, he does genuinely, uh, but he is incredibly humble. He's an incredibly humble man. He, he constantly reminds his readers that he's simply speculating, uh, that his, his writings should not be considered authoritative for the church and that he is very willing to be corrected from scripture. He says, uh, nothing which is a variance with the tradition of the apostles and the church should be accepted as true. So he's, he himself is very humble, but a lesson we will learn from Origen, you never know what someone is going to do with your ideas. They may be innocent in your lifetime, but you never know what a student, after you're gone, when they pick up your works and they read it, that you never know what they're going to do with your ideas, and we are going to have massive problems result from uh, Origen's work here. And his main mistake in, in this attempt to write a systematic theology is he relies far too much on uh, Platonic philosophy, again, in his attempt to show, uh, he essentially tries to Christianize uh, Platonic thought rather than truly giving a biblical account of what Christians believe. So... What is kind of an overview of his theology? Well, first of all, he reads Genesis 1 and 2, uh, which, you know, Genesis is kind of a 10,000-foot view of creation, walking through the days of creation, and then Genesis 2 kind of zooms in and actually shows God forming Adam from the dirt and forming Eve from Adam's rib. So it's the same account, but you kind of get the high view and then a, a zoomed-in view. But Origen concludes these are two separate creation accounts, two different creation accounts. One, the first, Genesis 1, that is a spiritual creation of the soul, and then Genesis 2 is a physical creation of the body. So keep that in mind. Uh, And then he also reads Romans 9, where Paul makes uh, the strong argument that God elects not on the basis of what we've done, uh, but just simply because he's God, based on his own uh, elected purposes. And his argument is, God says, before they were born, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So Origen reads that and he concludes the exact opposite of Paul's point. And here's his conclusion. It's going to sound pretty nuts. Uh, Jacob and Esau, in that first creation, they have these pre-existent souls. And in their pre-existent state, their souls sinned somehow. Esau sinned. And so that's why God says, Jacob I love, Esau I hate, is because their souls actually, so it is actually based on something they've done. Again, the exact opposite point Paul makes. And so that leads him to kind of create this massive uh, cosmology of Christianity where you have the first creation where we have all these created souls, all of us, whose goal, whose job is to cling to the divine, cling to God, contemplate God, cling with all our might, but we don't. We fall into sin and we all fall. Souls fall. And so to create, uh, God brings this second physical creation, Genesis 2, to give us bodies to kind of house our uh, fallen souls. And so now uh, we are in the body and our goal is to ascend to God to get kind of back to that first state. By our own efforts, ascend to God. Uh, By the way, he he also believed that demons and the devil were created souls as well, and they fell further than humans, and so they don't get bodies, uh, but they're, you know, the same as us. So our job, again, is is notice that the, the upward ascent to God through our own efforts, man rising up to God through his own efforts. So how can we be saved? That's the key question. How can we rise up to God? Well, there was one soul that didn't fall. Can anybody guess whose soul that was? Jesus. Thank you, everybody. Um, Jesus' soul perfectly clings to God. So notice right out of the gate, Jesus is less than God. He is not equal to God. I've included a long quote of Origen's understanding of the Trinity. The Son is less than the Father. The Spirit is less than Christ. Jesus is a created soul that clings to God perfectly, and he takes on a human body to show us how we can rise up to God. So he takes a body not because he fell, but to show us how we can rise back up to God and perfectly cling to God like he did. So again, notice, Jesus is not God. He's an intermediary and he's primarily an example. He's primarily an example who shows us how we, by our own efforts, can rise up to God, can follow him. He's kind of a trailblazer in that regard. He is not God coming down to accomplish salvation on our behalf. That is a very, very, very important distinction. And that right there will be the debate for the next uh, couple hundred years in the early church. The key question, can we rise up to God by our own efforts? 
or does God have to come down to us and save us? Does he have to come down and accomplish salvation for us in the incarnation? So Origen would say the first. So we're rising up to God, we're following Jesus' good example, and when we finally get there, when we finally get back to God, how we were in the beginning, uh, salvation is not personal. We share, according to Origen, in God's qualities. We share in his holiness or in his wisdom. So notice, it is not a personal relationship with God. Rather, you're kind of in a very mystical sense sharing in God's qualities. This is gonna massively influence the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, Zach will give a whole lecture on that. Uh, later in uh, our church history teaching, but this massively influences this idea of it's not personal fellowship with God. Uh, That's not the goal of salvation. It's this mystical sharing in his qualities. Uh, And we won't even have bodies according to origin because we'll have transcended material. And then ultimately everyone will be saved, including the devil, right? He's just another fallen soul. And so God is love. And so all these souls will eventually get back to, up to God, including uh, the devil. And then we'll just kind of go back to how things were. No physical, we're all spiritual. And he says, there's nothing to guarantee it won't happen again. So we're finally gonna get back up to God and then another soul is gonna fall. And I'm like, okay, let's do this whole thing over again. So uh, origin, obviously that is not, <laughs> shouldn't sound very Christian to you. If that sounds Christian, we'd love to have coffee with you. That shouldn't sound very Christian. Uh, but Origen's problem is not that he doesn't know the Bible. He probably has it memorized. Origen's problem is he's reading back onto the scriptures uh, Greek philosophical ideas. His, his problem is his interpretation of the scriptures. And again, there's gonna be some horrible consequences to this writing, though he's incredibly humble, saying this is just my speculation. Uh, After Two years after his death, uh, arguably the greatest heretic in the Christian church, Arius, is born. He will find Origen's writing, he'll become one of his biggest students, and he will eventually bring about the heresy of the Christian church, the first heresy that the Christian church has to really battle, all because, again, you never know what someone's gonna do with your ideas, no matter how humble you are. Arius must have skimmed that part where he's like, I don't think this is right. I'm just speculating. Uh, But his teaching will eventually be condemned in the fifth ecumenical council in 553 AD when the church realizes, okay, all these heresies we've been fighting for a number of years, a lot of them are coming from origin. So let's go ahead and condemn his writings. They burnt a lot of his works, which is why we don't have a whole lot of them. But he himself uh, is imprisoned in uh, 250 AD and severely, severely tortured and eventually dies in prison, tortured again because he refuses to renounce the faith. And so Origen has become kind of a great mystery for scholars because, A, we don't have a whole lot of his works. The works that we do have are so crazy that we think, how can this man believe he is a Christian, yet he dies for the faith? A lot of the commentaries that we have seem to be really good, and so there's this big question mark around Origen, but unfortunately, his main work that has influenced the church did influence it negatively on first principles. So uh, those are the two main apologists. You may be thinking, they didn't really give a good defense for the faith, and uh, that is true. Again, these are the first men attempting to do so. I believe, uh, again, my personal belief, that had they existed after the church had fought these battles and said, this is the uh, teaching on the Trinity, on who Jesus is, they would humbly have said, yes, that's much better than, than what I'm attempting to say. But that's my uh, opinion. Lastly, the thinkers. You guys have been wondering, what do they think about? I've been waiting this whole teaching. What are the thinkers thinking about? Uh, The thinkers, the Tertullian and Irenaeus of Lyon are mainly fighting the heretics. Uh, Let me make a comment about heresy. No one sets out to be a heretic ever. No one wakes up and thinks, I want to give a teaching that the church has never thought and it's going to cause this big controversy. They wake up and think, I have this teaching that brings beautiful clarity to who Jesus is or what the gospel is. And they stand up in their pulpit and they preach it and someone else hears about it and says, nope, if that's true, salvation is impossible. So no one sets out to be a heretic, uh, but uh, they're, they're thinking, they're, they're bringing about this good teaching. But yes, if they're right, the reality of the Christian faith would crumble. Or to say it another way, if the heretic were right, salvation is impossible. Think about Paul in 1 Corinthians when someone is teaching that there's no resurrection. What does Paul say? If in this life only we have hope, we Christians are most to be pitied. Why? Because if there's no resurrection, Christ hasn't been raised, we have no hope for the future, and we have all believed folly, right? If this one thing, if the resurrection isn't true, 
our faith unravels. And so he, in 1 Corinthians 15, gives a beautiful case for the resurrection and why it's so absolutely central to the Christian faith. That's an example of Paul fighting heresy. If that heresy were right, we have no hope in this life. And so these two men, Tertullian and Irenaeus, do the same. They're fighting the earliest heresies. Jeff, by the way, is going to give a whole lecture, uh, or whatever you call this, teaching, uh, on uh, the heresies. So I'm not going to mention much details about the heresies. Jeff's going to give a whole talk. I'm mainly going to reference the, the contributions that these men make to the faith. So the first one, Tertullian. He looks like a nice guy, right, in that picture. He's a bit of a curmudgeon. Uh, he's from Carthage in, in North Africa. He's African. Uh, he was raised as a pagan, but he was very impressed, again, with the Christian witness that there were, will, there were people willing to die for their faith. It was martyrdom that began to draw him to the Christian faith. And so he does become a Christian in his mid-30s. He is a brilliant, he has a brilliant mind. He was educated as a lawyer. He's a very skilled rhetorician, which is why he's such a good, uh, he was an apologist as well, but his, his teachings are so clear and he's incredibly passionate. Probably not a guy, a guy you want to hang out with, uh, but he's very passionate. He would call his opponents things like you murderers of truth, right? So if you think, you know, people are mean to each other on Twitter, go read Tertullian and you'll think, no, we're generally pretty nice to each other. Uh, so he would call, you know, murders of truth. He would fight against injustice. I have a quote there where he's arguing for due process, Right, Christians who are being put on trial, uh, arguing for due process. He's way ahead of his time in that regard. He would fight against abortion, which is incredibly common in Roman society because he argued worth comes from God and not from someone's usefulness or not from some human giving you worth. So he'd fight against injustice all the time and he is considered the father of Western theology, which is us. Okay, so Roman Catholicism uh, and Protestantism is Western, Eastern, the Eastern Orthodox Church. He's considered the, f- the father, the foundation layer of Western uh, theology. So what, are his, what, what, what is the foundation that he builds for the church? Again, these are just overviews. We could give a whole semester on these, these two men, but uh, he, he argues for a, a continuity between the Old and New Testament. Uh, one heresy that was around that was very popular in the day was called Marcionism. Who argue, Marcion argued the Old Testament God is a God of wrath. He's evil. He's just a wrathful, hateful God. And the God of the New Testament actually shows up to save us from that God. God of the New Testament is all, uh, he's loving and so he's saving us from, the Old Testament God. And Tertullian, again, argues, no, no, no. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. And he argues, first of all, you can't have two supreme beings. You can't have uh, one God that is infinite and then another God is infinite. To be infinite means you're unique. You can't have these two supreme beings. That doesn't make any logical sense. There can only be one infinitely supreme being Right, it's kind of the, the popular idea today where people cast kind of God as the de- and the devil as, you know, locked. Who's going to win? Hopefully, God's just a little bit stronger. Tertullian would say that is ridiculous. God is infinite in every possible way. The devil is a created being who God has on a leash. Right, so you can't have two infinite beings. And then, secondly, he heavily argues Christ Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament God. The God in the Old Testament who says, obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings curses, sends a Messiah to take those curses on our behalf. A very strong argument for the continuity of this God who demands perfect obedience because he is infinitely holy, sent the Messiah to pay the penalty for our disobedience. So he argues for that continuity, showing that they're, they're the same God. And in fact, uh, this God that you think is so hateful is the one who sent the Savior to save you so that you could know him. So that's one of the first. The second is the Trinity. He kind of gives us the language we still use today of one God, three persons. Okay, so again, modalism was another heresy Jeff will talk about, where this idea that there was kind of one God who just appeared to be Father, Son, and Spirit. So it's not three persons of the Trinity, it's just one God who uh, showed up in these different modes. Modalism, that's where it comes from, okay. Uh, so uh, Tertullian says this, I testify that the Father, Son, and Spirit are inseparable from each other. Now observe my assertion that the Father is one person, uh, the Son is one person, and the Spirit is one person, and that they are distinct from each other. This statement is taken Uh, in a wrong sense by every uneducated and perversely disposed person. There's this lovely tone. Uh, As if it uh, predicated a diversity 
in such a, a sense as to imply a separation among the Father, Son, and Spirit. So he's saying, you know, as persons, uh, they are distinct, but as the one true God, they are inseparable, right? So this is a language that, again, we're, we're still using to this day. He kind of lays the foundation for that. And, and it's important to see, this isn't just about getting the terms right. There's, there's a, a, a negative way of looking at theology as a whole of, that's just the boring stuff where I have to learn all the right definitions so that I'm not a heretic. I've just got to get my terms right. Again, if modalism is true, the Christian faith totally unravels because if you have God, the Father, dying on the cross, which he would have to claim, what penalty is that God paying to God if it's the same God and who raises that God from the dead, right? The Christian faith would totally unravel. So it's not just about, no, 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 you've got the wrong definition. Here's the right definition. Let's, let's all read from the same Christian dictionary. It's about the, the core nature of our salvation, of what it means to be a Christian. So he does, uh, solidifies the language for the Trinity for the Western church, and then he solidifies the, how we talk about Christ, that Christ is one person with two natures. The eternal God the Son, the person who's always existed as God, becomes a man while remaining God, becomes a man with now two natures. The same person, not two persons, uh, being united some, in some weird way. Again, this is a heresy that would pop up much later, but he's the first one to talk about Christ living as God, as man. One person with, with uh, two natures. He heavily argues for the goodness of material, the goodness of the body. Uh, again, Gnosticism and, and a lot of Greek philosophy have this idea that material's bad. You know, it's a result of the fall, something like that. We're souls that need to be freed uh, back, to the, uh, back to the spiritual. And he would heavily argue that the Christian religion has a heavy emphasis on the physical, on the material. We're not souls temporarily just housed in a body. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, when the soul is actually free from the body and with God, it still longs to be reunited with the body and be resurrected. Right? He points to Paul's constant emphasis on the resurrection. He even says, why would Jesus take on a body if it were not to redeem the body? Why would Jesus take on a physical body if he was just in it to redeem the soul. So he, he, again, that's something we still fight to this day, this weird idea that physical, that flesh is somehow bad, even though, again, Paul's hope in Christianity is the resurrection and we will live in the new heavens and new earth here physically. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This idea that the physical is always a part of Christianity. It's not us getting out of this. That's, that's a Gnostic idea that still lingers today. And then lastly, uh, works and salvation. How do works play in with Christian salvation. Uh, Tertullian is very serious, very serious about Christian morality, uh, sometimes to the point of legalism. We have some works from him, uh, his, called, one is called On Shows, where he says, how could we be entertained by pagan shows? And calling all Christians not, not to go to the circus, or to be fair, the gladiatorial games. I would uh, agree with him in that sense. Uh, and then one called uh, on, the, uh, on the Appeal of Women, uh, where he encourages women to dress modestly. That's a nice uh, way to summarize it. Uh, right, he's very, he has no patience for what he perceives as moral laxity in the church. And so this is gonna set up the Western church, again, Catholicism, later Protestantism, to really have to wrestle with what role do works play in salvation? What role do works play in salvation? And you see we even uh, have to wrestle with that. That is one of the key wrestles of the Protestant Reformation. And we get that from Tertullian. These guys, you know, most of the early guys will say something, write a statement that is good, and then the next generation will say, well, how is this possible? And then a controversy will uh, come through it when they ask a deeper question, a deeper question, and the church continues to have to uh, dig. And so Tertullian is just saying, you know, be holy. And so then someone else will come along and say, well, how does that work? Our holiness versus Christ's holiness. Do we have to be holy so that God accepts us or are we holy because he accepts us? And they have to wrestle with those things. And so he kind of lays the groundwork to, uh, for the Western church in particular to wrestle with how does morality play with salvation? Uh, the big controversy about Tertullian later in life, he would join a fringe group, to put it uh, nicely, a heretical group to put it, accurately. Um, uh, in his late 40s, he's very frustrated. Again, the, the big moralist, he's very frustrated with what he perceives as laxity in the church, people who aren't living holy lives. And so he joins a group called the Montanists. Again, uh, Jeff will give an overview. Uh, but Montanists followed a, gu a guy named Montanus hence the name, uh, who would speak. He saw himself as the mouthpiece of the Spirit, and he would stand and speak in the first person. Uh, as the Holy Spirit. He believed the Holy Spirit was speaking through him, but he would still say, 
hey guys, I think we should go speak a homeless, or go, uh, go start a homeless ministry, says the Holy Spirit, which is a little sketchy. I would say, you know, avoid people who uh, make those claims. Uh, but they were very strict, very moral. And so Tertullian was very attracted to them because of their moral rigor. Uh, and by the way, most Montanists, this fringe group, not all of them actually left the church. Some did and said, I just want to be a part of this group. Some viewed it as like, parachurch ministry, for lack of a better word, uh, for lack of a better term. But Tertullian does join them. That's why he's actually never made a saint, because that group will eventually be uh, called heretical. Uh, and he, but he continues to fight against heresy even after he, he joins that group. So uh, we, we don't have a whole lot of, we don't have any writings where he rejects a key Christian doctrine and uh, accepts some heretical Montanist doctrine. We just know that he joined them and that they're super sketchy. So he's not made a saint, but he's still uh, considered the father of Western theology. Again, a, a brilliant thinker and really starting to lay the foundation for uh, Western Christian faith in particular. And then lastly, Irenaeus of Lyon, the greatest mind, the greatest theological mind of the early church, uh, early, early church. Uh, he was a disciple of Polycarp, who we looked at earlier, the great martyr, who was discipled by John. So again, he's a third generation disciple of John, if you will. He's from Smyrna, where Polycarp was a bishop. And then he eventually is educated in Rome and then becomes uh, the bishop of Lyon in 178 AD. In the context of him becoming a bishop, uh, there was a huge persecution that broke out in the city. Several Christians were dragged into the amphitheater of the city, and the bishop, the current bishop, was killed along with 48 other Christians, some uh, children as young as 14. So that is the context in which he steps into leadership of that church. Again, persecution is very rampant around all these guys. His two main works are one called Against Heresies, again, not creative with the name, uh, and On the Apostolic Preaching. Uh, he uh, is, is not a massive philosophical thinker like Tertullian or Origen, but rather he's kind of just like a, a pastor. You see in a lot more of his writings, a pastoral heart that just says, I just want to deliver the truth of the scriptures of the apostles and the prophets down to my people. The truth that I've inherited, I want to deliver. And so in his statements, you get kind of, uh, you know, a statement about the Trinity would contain, you know, the whole gospel or something like that. I have an example uh, to show what I mean. This is him talking about the Trinity or the articles of uh, the Christian faith. And this is the order of our faith. God, the Father, uncreated, uncontainable, invisible, one God, the creator of all. This is the first article of our faith. And the second article, the word of God, the son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was revealed by the prophets and by whom all things were made and who in the last times to recapitulate all things became a man amongst men, visible and palpable in order to abolish death and to demonstrate life and to effect communion between God and man. And the third article, the Holy Spirit, through whom the prophets prophesied and the patriarchs learnt the things of God and the, and the righteous were led in the paths of righteousness and who in the last times was poured out in a new fashion upon the human race, renewing man throughout the world to God. And so you see that statement, a statement like that does have the Trinity, right? a very good definition of the Trinity, by the way, uh, but also has creation, he has the incarnation, he has salvation, he has the spirits inspiring of the biblical authors, of the prophets, of the patriarchs, the idea that the spirit is poured out in a new way to renew our hearts and that we're being brought back into communion with God. So you see how that contains so much about the gospel message just in one statement. So a lot of his writings uh, are, are this way. Uh, so uh, what are his main kind of contributions to the church. Uh, one is the idea that God has a very real purpose in creation. So uh, this idea that, that history is God's uh, revelation to us, this, this kind of unfolding revelation of God's purposes. So it allows us to see our lives in the context of what God has done, is doing, and what he will do. Okay, so God creates, not because he needs to, not like origin because somehow pre-existent souls have fallen or whatever, but out of love, right? He creates out of love, all history uh, has a purpose, a goal that he is leading his people towards. And for Irenaeus, that goal was fellowship with himself, relationship, communion with himself. And so in this idea, uh, one of the key, the key element is the incarnation, Christmas. The idea that the son of God came down, became a man while remaining God uh, to redeem humanity. He has this idea that man cannot rise up to God. Again, totally contrary to origin and later heretics. Man, by his own efforts, cannot rise up to God. God has to come down and save us. 
It was impossible for humanity, which had fallen under the dominion of sin, to lay hold of salvation. Therefore, the Son accomplished these things. Existing as God's word, he descended from the Father and became enfleshed and humbled himself to the point of death and completed God's plan for our salvation. So very clear, we cannot rise up to God. It is impossible. We are under the dominion of sin. God has to come down and save us, and that is exactly what the Son did in the incarnation. And then notice, it's according to God's plan. Again, this idea that God has, has a plan in all of his creation. Uh, and then secondly, again, this is, this is, he's anticipating later debates that are gonna come up, and, and one of them is uh, Jesus, the one who comes down. If we can't rise up to God, we need God to come down to us. The one who comes down needs to be God, completely God, and needs to truly become man. Unless it was God who conferred salvation, we would not possess it securely. We had, uh, we had to receive, through the Son's agency, participation in him. The word, having been made flesh, had to share himself with us. And that is why he went through every stage of human life, restoring to all, the communion, or to all of them communion with God. He has to be both God and man. He cannot be just some intermediary, some lesser God. He has to be fully God in order to restore personal communion with God and he has to become fully man or else he doesn't represent us before holy God. He can't fully restore. And then uh, the third thing, he, rest- he has this, uh, this goal of salvation is fellowship with God. The word became uh, a human being. The son of God was made the son of man so that humanity, having received the word and accepted adoption, might become sons of God. Adoption is at the center point of this idea, God bringing us into fellowship with him because the son came down. Again, one of the reasons why we are passionate about you reading men like Irenaeus is because they display the gospel in such a beautiful light. This is who our savior is and this is who he needs to be. And because we could not by our own efforts rise up to God, he came down to bring us into the most glorious fellowship that we could ever fathom, communion with God. And then lastly, uh, he heavily influences in the church on our approach to scripture or the idea of what is the truth that we believe. So remember in his day early on, there's no uh, 66 books of the Bible, closed canon. The the scriptures are out there. They have a lot, have all of them, but they're still debating. Is this scripture, was this written by an apostle? I don't think so. They're trying to recognize what is already authoritative. And Irenaeus shows a very clear line from the Old Testament uh, to the New Testament and how that, the scripture, is the truth that the church has uh, inherited. So has this statement. This, beloved, is the preaching of the truth, and this is the character of our salvation, and this is the way of life, which the prophets announced, right, Old Testament, Christ has confirmed and the apostles have handed over to the church and in the whole world hands down to their children. So notice where the authority is in that statement. Uh, the prophets uh, declare it, Christ confirms it, and the apostles pass it down to the church, right? So there's the authority, and that's given to the church, and the church just simply hands that down. So uh, a big kind of Catholic Protestant debate, especially in regard to how the early church handled scripture, you don't have a whole lot of strong statements saying the scripture is the ultimate authority, not church tradition, all that, because you don't really need to. But when you see how the early people handle the scriptures, you see that it is by far uh, the ultimate authority. And so he gives us an example of that. The church is simply handing down the truth that we've received from the prophets, Old Testament, Christ, and the apostles, New Testament. Uh, And then lastly, his method of interpreting scripture. We have a long quote here, but I'll read it all because it's important. Uh, His method of interpreting the scriptures is that everything must be about Christ. Everything has to be about Christ. So he's critiquing Gnostics here who misinterpret the scriptures, and he says, Uh, This system of theirs is something to which the prophets did not claim, the Lord did not teach, and the uh, apostles did not pass on. Nevertheless, these false teachers boast that they have a more perfect knowledge than them. These heretics gather their views from other sources than the scriptures. They get it from outside the Bible. Uh, and then use, or to use a common proverb, they try to weave ropes out of sand when they attempt to present their particular notions as the meanings of the parables of the Lord, the sayings of the prophets, or the words of the apostles. And they do this in order that their scheme may not seem altogether without, the, without support. Uh, but 
to do so, they have, disregard, or they have to disregard the order and the connections within the scriptures. And as far as they are able, they dismantle and destroy the truth by moving passages from one place to another and inventing new meanings for them. They have adopted the, or, or they have adapted the oracles of the Lord to their notions and they have deceitfully deluded many people. They act like those who, when a beautiful mosaic of a king has been made by some skillful artist out of precious jewels, they dismantle that likeness and rearrange the gems to form a dog or a fox, and even that poorly done. Similarly, these heretics patch together old wives' tales and then by grossly misinterpreting the words, uh, expressions, and parables which they find, they make the oracles of God to fit uh, what they have concocted. So that's a long way of saying heretics are wrong because they don't read the Bible right. <laughs> heretics are wrong. That, that is one of the most uh, famous statements, one of the most famous uh, passages in all of uh, early church literature. But notice he describes, again, the scriptures as prophets, Jesus, apostles that's being handed down and the heretics get their truth not from them but from outside the Bible and they read it back onto the scriptures. They rearrange it, right? Proof texting uh, to find their, uh, to give biblical support for their truth, right? Every heretic will have uh, biblical passages at the end of their incorrect statements. That's kind of what he's meaning. But primarily he's saying heretics misinterpret the Bible because they don't see the big picture. They don't see that everything is about Jesus. It is meant to be a mosaic of the king. Yet they dismantle it and make it about a dog or a fox and even that poorly done. Again, nice tone by these guys. Uh, They take passages out of context to try and support their views. So for Irenaeus, uh, the way we interpret the Bible is everything is about Jesus. Every passage should be seen in light of who the Bible is all about, is another way to say it. Now, the downside of this is uh, he and a lot of other early church writers are gonna butcher Old Testament passages because they literally try and see every passage of the Bible uh, to mean something about Jesus. So Jesus under every rock, if you read a lot of these guys, their interpretations of the Old Testament, it's not great. Uh, it's certainly not what Moses meant when he was writing you know, in different books of the Bible or the prophets. But the upside uh, to their way of uh, interpreting the Bible is they are very unlikely to miss anything that points to Christ. They're unlikely to stumble into a heresy about Jesus. And they might say to us, after all, doesn't Jesus, I don't know, several times I've, I've put some verses there say, hey, the whole Bible's about me. And we have that summary statement where he shows those people, but Luke doesn't give us what he actually says selfishly. He just gives that summary statement. So uh, I do not think we should follow his example in allegorically making everything in the Old Testament about Jesus, trying to find out. But what I do think we should do is every time we read a passage in its context in the Old Testament, see what Moses meant, see the truth that it's displaying, we then ask the next question. We do biblical theology and say, how does this point to the later truth of the gospel? How does this promise to David that one day he would have a son that would reign forever and ever and uh, establish a kingdom that would have no end? How does that point uh, to the gospel, to Christ? Right? So I don't think he's giving us a great example here, but I do think he's giving us a, uh, a good challenge, a good reminder that we should always be, we should, if the Bible is all about Jesus, which we would affirm that it is, we should ultimately, when we go and interpret some Old Testament passage, say, okay, I've interpreted this, this is what Moses means, how does this, how is Christ ultimately gonna fulfill this? We, we do more biblical theology. I think that's a good challenge that he's leading for us leaving for us. Uh, we don't know the circumstances of his death. We know he was killed, he was martyred uh, in the same persecution as Origen's uh, father, but we don't know the, the specifics. So that is Irenaeus. He is gonna lay the foundation that uh, many of the later uh, thinkers like Athanasius and Cyril of Alexandria, men that we'll talk about will follow. But uh, you'll notice, again, as we wrap up, we don't have time for questions because I went long, uh, but uh, you'll notice this is not a very clear uh, trajectory of just, you know, Paul preaches perfectly and then Ignatius preaches perfectly and then Justin preaches perfectly and it's just this beautiful clear line and we're 2,000 years and no one has ever said anything that we would disagree with, right? God uses imperfect men and why is that an encouragement to us? Why do we not freak out about that? Because the preservation of the church has never been up to man. It has always been up to God. And so when we introduce you to these men, some of them will be great. There will be almost no one that we will say everything they believe 
we believe, including Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin, uh, even later guys, when we read these men, we read them with discerning eyes. And where they're wrong, we praise God that it's not up to man, that it's up to him that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church and where, uh, where they display the, the beauties of the gospel and the beauties of our Savior. We worship. We worship. So that is these men and that is the end of this teaching. Let me pray for us. Uh, we have one minute and I couldn't get to a question in one minute, so I apologize. But email those. I say this every week. Please email us to us. We're happy to answer any of those questions. But let me pray and then we'll, you will be dismissed uh, until uh, service at 1030. Father, we love you. We thank you uh, that even today as we, as we read uh, these men, as we look back on these men and see their faults and see how uh, they also display the gospel in a way we had not thought of before, in a clearer light than we had thought of before, we thank you that it isn't up to us, that even us as we minister here at Parkway Church, uh, we, this, uh, your kingdom is not based on uh, man. It is based completely on you. It is all about you coming down to redeem us. You are the founder and the perfecter of uh, our faith. And so we praise you that as we even look at mistakes, horrible mistakes that people in the church have made, we can still look and praise you because it is not up to man to preserve your kingdom throughout the centuries. Your spirit preserves the kingdom throughout the centuries. So we pray that we would be faithful, uh, that we, like these men, would want to defend the faith, would want to think deeply about the faith and not believe something that is false, something that would dishonor you, something that would uh, take away from your glory, your beauty, that would turn our eyes away to something that is false. We want to believe what is true and have a joyful worship fill up in our hearts and we pray that we would always stand, that we would be like uh, the early martyrs in our absolute uh, stance and resolve that you are our savior. Like Paul Eckhart said, how, uh, our savior who has never done us wrong, how could we abandon uh, our king who has saved us? We praise you for who you are and pray in your son's holy and precious name, amen.